I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. COVID-19 has fundamentally changed our relationship with our homes and has impacted where we live and who can afford to put a roof over their heads. As waves of the pandemic have happened, terms like shelter-in-place and stay-at-home order have become commonplace. But what if you don't have shelter? What if you don't have a home? In the past two years, home prices have soared and rents have increased. Many people have lost access to housing or their housing situation has become increasingly uncertain. At the same time, housing has become an increasingly profitable endeavor for many. At the core of the situation is an inherent tension. On one side, the pandemic has accelerated the commodification of housing, a trend that's been increasing over previous decades. At the same time, the hardships of the pandemic have also magnified the need for housing to be considered as a human right and a social good instead of a commodity. In today's episode, I talk to Leilani Farah, Global Director of The Shift, to share her expertise on housing. Let's dive in. I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the global director of an international movement called The Shift. And The Shift is focused on securing the human right to housing for people around the world and is really focused on trying to change the conversation around housing to move it away from understanding housing as a commodity and turning it back to an understanding of housing as a social good. I'm also the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing, a post I held from 2014 till 2020. And that was kind of like I was a world watchdog on housing (laughs) and human rights. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Uh, So maybe let's start there in terms of that distinction uh, between housing as a human right and housing as a commodity. Uh, Could you maybe give some uh, some background on on how that's evolved over time, the the sort of, um, you know, global perspective on how the shift to um, housing as a commodity and, and why that difference is so important to our world today? Yeah, I mean, housing and land have been treated as a commodity for quite some time if you if you think of it in in simple terms um you know in in Canada for example um we have a huge percentage of our population in home ownership and most people in order to ho- own a home have to get a mortgage and that's a kind of i mean it's a, pro- a mortgage is a financial product and it's commodifying the house the house uh, on the land um that it sits and so that's you know been the case for a long, long time. When I talk about commodification in the here and now, something new has happened fairly recently within the last sort of decade or so. Mm. Um, it has its roots in neoliberalism. So in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, you can think of the Margaret Thatcher years, the Ronald Reagan years, um, the Brian Mulroney years. Um, what we saw was... Um, a big step back by governments out of the housing arena, out of the provision of social housing, and an opening up of the sector to the private market, and um, a loosening of tenant protections, for example. Um, Mm. A real view that the private market will take care of things. 
including the poorest households, um, the low income households, those in receipt of social assistance, that kind of thing. And this was really uh, dominant in in North America, certainly in Western Europe, to some degree. Um, In Western Europe, you saw, for example, neoliberalism roll out alongside a preservation of social housing in many places and the idea of housing as a as a social good but really in all countries since the global financial crisis there's been a a, a real shift and that shift comes with yes the de- the economic demise of many households and in fact many countries and at the same time the incredible wealth liquidity, access to cash that certain financial actors had post-global financial crisis, in particular private equity firms, insurance companies, um, pension funds. And so they didn't suffer as a result of the global financial crisis. And they had a lot of money and still have a lot of money to to put somewhere. And the place that they Mm. decided to put a lot of this money is residential real estate. And that's an ongoing affair. And so um, it's unprecedented amounts of wealth. I mean, if we just look at the pandemic era, we know that billionaires' wealth has increased by 54% in the pandemic year or years now. Right. We right. know that yeah. every within the first year of the pandemic, every 17 hours, a billionaire was born. So this Uber wealth wants to go somewhere, wants to be put somewhere where it can make more wealth. And the, the, the asset of choice often is residential real estate. And so that's the commodification of housing that I'm concerned with. Mm-hmm. It's not to mm-hmm. say I don't, I'm not concerned with the individual speculator, you know, the person who buys five homes and is speculating. There, there is concern there, but my real concern or bigger concern is with these bigger actors. Mm-hmm. And it's really, yeah, like you say, it's, it's kind of a, a some, somewhat of a continuum, just a matter of, of scale and the massive, massive, almost inconceivable scale of some of the, some of these actors and the impact that they're having across the world is, is really, um, you know, learning more about the work you do. That's, that's something, you know, we work in a lot of local contexts, perhaps a little disconnected from the global, but it's all part of the the same continuum. Well, that's right. And, and there is no, there's no such thing as local anymore, almost in a way mm-hmm. where residential real estate is concerned. The actors are certainly national in this country, in Canada, um, and often multinational or global. The capital is global. The money that they have to invest comes from all different sources. Um, and so that, that idea of the kind of local landlord is being eroded um, and mm. is being replaced with really financial instruments often are replacing landlords. So there's this thing called real estate investment trusts. And they might look like a company or a corporation, but they're really just a financial instrument. A trust is a financial instrument. And they mm-hmm. use this financial instrument to invest in normally multifamily homes, in other words, apartment buildings. They take they look for undervalued assets. In other words, and I put undervalued in quotes because to them they're undervalued because they are an extractive industry. So they can see Mm. they can extract more wealth from the undervalued assets. So 
they go out looking for apartment buildings built in the 70s, for example, 60s, 70s, where they maybe they're not paying a really cheap price for those units. Often they they are because they have, in a way, they are because they get access to cheap loans. So money's free for right. these big actors. Right. Um, so... So in that way, the the asset might be sort of cheaper, um, but then it's also valuable to them because they know they can extract wealth from it by doing modest renovations, um, removing tenants from units, and then um, increasing rents, or using the renovations as a as a vehicle for asking for rent increases that they wouldn't otherwise be allowed uh, to 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 do so really putting pressure on tenants their wealth is dependent on tenants and the rent Mm -hmm. that tenants pay um so local local actors local is is being displaced by global and 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 power basically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and again it seems that that relates to scale again so if i own an apartment block and you own an apartment block we might renovate a unit a year or two, but the amount of capital that these folks have access to the scale that they can do that and the impact on the human beings at that scale is such a, such a big concern. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, they, they use, they have all sorts of methods. Um, sometimes they'll buy an asset that's kind of run down and they know they can extract wealth from it, but it's, it's more economical for them to let the building completely run down and become basically mm. like a, you know, they call them slumlords, but basically, you know, a, a, a real decrepit building, and then they would have cause um, for suggesting that the entire building be um, trashed and um, that they rebuild. And when they rebuild, they rebuild luxury or higher end, and um, mm. the people who were living there in what might have been affordable units are displaced, evicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. the worst part about all of this in North American, Western European context is a lot of this happens w- within the parameters of the law. And so the actors can say, well, I'm, d- I'm just using the system. I'm just obeying the laws. I didn't do anything illegal. In fact, I was super nice. I, I suggested to the tenant that I give them uh, their last month rent free, or, you know, I gave them three months rent and got them to move out. It's like, well, that person might be okay. That tenant might be okay for three months. But after that, they're, they're going to find themselves in unaffordable housing because that's all that exists now is unaffordable housing mm-hmm. in most cities. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a, very, um, it's, it's a very systemic in nature and so really does require yeah, systemic right. responses. Right. And, and so when you, you mentioned kind of the, the trend and trajectory dating back to the 70s, moving into the 80s, um, the 2008 financial crisis seems to have really pushed that, that trend in that direction. Has COVID had the same um, accelerating impact on the, the uh, involvement and influence of uh, uh, you know, these, these trusts and these private equity firms? Um, it's not quite the same in that in 2008, um, the purchasing of single-family homes en masse was a new thing. Um, mm. And so, and that triggered a whole business model. Um, and the acquiring of undervalued so-called assets in the form of multifamily buildings or apartment buildings wasn't... Um, um, well, it really started to, to, to track up um, after 08. And so... 
what we see with the pandemic is kind of a continuation of that. Right. Um, right. It was slow to start because I think a lot of the actors were like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, as was most of the world's population. <laughs> I think maybe, maybe some of us are still like, whoa, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, but then the shopping spree did, did begin. Um, I haven't tracked it. Um, it's very difficult to track because um, there's no one tracking this. And um, there isn't like a central database. Uh, beneficial ownership or um, who owns what isn't always clear. Um, a lot of these right. deals happen quite secretively and behind closed doors. And um, they they sometimes will get wind where only when it's a fait accompli um, and it happens to be a, a, um, a worthy of a press release. So um, I have hmm. seen, though, for example, Blackstone, which is the largest residential real estate private equity firm. Um, I mean, they have the largest... Uh, portfolio in terms of residential real estate of, of private equity firms, I believe. Um, they have entered into the affordable housing arena in the United States, which is super scary. Oh. Yeah. So they're purchasing buildings. So in the U.S., they don't have a lot of social housing, but they do have buildings that are, in quotes, affordable. And I, they're, I don't put it in quotes affordable um, because they're unaffordable. They aren't. They are affordable buildings. They fall under a scheme an affordable housing scheme that's um, probably too complicated to go into for the uh, purposes of a short podcast, but enough to say that um, a developer could uh, benefit from the scheme and get tax credits uh, working with a local housing provider by, by mm-hmm. developing, building, and providing affordable housing to low-income people. And um, those were 20 to 30-year deals, basically. Um, and some of those are, are ripe. They're coming to the close of the 20 to 30. Oh, okay. And my understanding is that Blackstone has purchased a whole bunch of six buildings, for example, in San Diego, that fall under this affordable housing legislation. And once, the, once that term of that program comes to an end, those units can be flipped to market. Okay. And so to market costs, to market rates. And so the question is, is that what Blackstone's intention is? They claim it's not. But then Blackstone claimed when they bought social housing in Spain after 08, after the global financial, well, in the midst of the global financial crisis, they said that they weren't going to change the social housing that they bought in Madrid, for example, to market rates. And that's not true. They did. So and so do we believe that Blackstone is buying up? affordable housing in San Diego because they as a private equity firm want to um, just break even? No, that goes against the business model of a private equity firm who really makes commitments to their investors to give a certain return on their investment. Right Now, maybe right. they think they can make a huge amount of money through the tax credits, but then we get into a moral quagmire. Do we think governments should be paying private equity firms handsomely to provide affordable housing when private equity firms have incredible liquidity, have a lot of cash on hand, hardly need a government handout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so, again, this, this relates back to the, the complexity of things. So if, if governments are giving, uh, giving these tax credits away, 
that's money that could actually go directly to housing <laughs> if government took that role exactly. seriously, if it took the, the affordable or the, the housing as a human right approach or, or sure ethic. or give tax Seriously. credits to local housing providers who mm-hmm. might not have short-term profits at incredible uh, return rates i mean you know blackstone would be um, telling its investors that they could get a 17 percent return on an investment that's really high return um, whereas a local landlord might be willing to have not even a double digit return over a longer period of time right Right, right. Okay, so um, when we think about the impact of COVID, um, you know, we've we've talked about kind of the, the broad uh, financial system as it relates to housing. When we think about the impact of COVID um, on how people um, have to navigate housing, the importance of housing, how we've rethought housing, what what are some key lessons that we've learned from the last however many months we've been through this? Oh, do you think lessons have been learned? <laughs> uh, by whom? I mean, I think, you know, the population suffering, suffering through the pandemic mm-hmm. and suffering uh, for fear of not being able to pay their rent because of uh, unemployment or underemployment. Uh, people uh, living in homelessness, trying to avoid shelters, congregate settings as dangerous places in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and then being evicted from parks by police officers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the things that we're seeing across Canada, for example, and in the United States. And so, uh, you know, but what has been learned? I mean, I would have thought governments would have used this as an opportunity to solve homelessness. They haven't. I would have thought they would have used it as an opportunity to ensure enough tenant protection so people feel secure, that they can't just be evicted for small arrears or evicted for arrears in the middle of a pandemic, having no, you know, nothing to do with themselves, the loss of jobs, underemployment, and governments haven't moved to, to increase tenant protections much. Um, there are a few, you know, I could come up with a few examples of, of better tenant protections, uh, Um, New Brunswick, for example, recently came up with better uh, tenant protections in this country. But um, I don't think um, there have been enough lessons learned uh, from this pandemic. I I think Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there's still time. Um, Maybe there's going to be some kind of a, a moment where governments say, okay, now... We've dealt with Omicron. Now we can deal with all the social and economic fallout from this pandemic. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see governments doing some stuff on the economic side. Um, I don't see them making any substantial systemic changes on on Mm -hmm. the housing side, for example. Mm -hmm. And it's still within that frame of uh, commodity and market will solve largely which Very is much. that's that's kind of the broad the broad mind mindset legislative mindset etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i mean you're we're starting to see like the bank of canada came out and said oh dear um you know supply is not the answer to the the um housing crisis that this country is in now the bank of canada was really looking at um the cost of home ownership when it said that. Um, but I think it's interesting that the Bank of Canada is taking a look at its role in 
hmm. contributing to the housing crisis by setting interest rates so low, for example. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe if there is a big systemic change like that, where they say, okay, we're contributing to this, we're fueling the fire, um, maybe we'll see um, a slight shift away from the Uber commodification of housing and understanding that mm. there are limits to how much housing can be commodified. I think if you look at what's happening, it's fascinating. If you look at what's happening in China around this Evergrande, um, uh, huge multinational corporation. It's not multinational. It's a Chinese corporation, but it gets monies from overseas. Um, it, it, does have foreign investors in it, but they are the second largest developer, uh, property developer in China, which you can imagine mm. is a huge market. Um, and what happened with Evergrande, so right now Evergrande is is unable to pay off its debts and it has, I don't know, $300 billion worth of debt and it can't pay it off. And some people are like worried, oh no, this is going to be another global financial crisis because it's that big and there's enough foreign investment that it could have an impact on the whole world. Mm. Um, but it's a pretty interesting case because part of the reason that they can't pay back their debt is because the government of, Ch- uh, of China, the Communist Party, has made borrowing harder. And so Evergrande okay. had been using borrowing as a way to pay off all this debt that it was accruing through its various mm. um, deals and schemes. And so the government sort of cut Evergrande off at the knees that way and um, is looking for a kind of correction in the market. Believe it or not, China has some of the most expensive, unaffordable cities in the world in terms of uh, Mm. accommodation. I mean, so, you know, we often think of, you know, San Francisco or Hong Kong. Well, um, there are cities, uh, I think, including Beijing, that are more expensive than those cities, harder to get into the real estate market. Um, But the Mm. Communist Party has uh, a platform, literally a slogan, that is common prosperity, that's part of the slogan, and the other part of the slogan, believe it or not, is housing is not for speculation. (laughs) It's Mm. for living in. That's the slogan. Mm. Amazing. Mm. And so, I mean, I know that the government of China is repressive, abuses human rights in all sorts of ways, and I am in no way trying to condone any of those activities. But pretty interesting mm-hmm. that they've gotten right into the real estate uh, sector and are trying to curb its activities, even though they stoked it in the first place. I mean, China's used real estate for economic growth in a mega way. Like, it is a mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. part, a huge part of their gross domestic product is related to the construction of new apartments and, and condominiums, etc. Um, but They've recognized that, that, okay, enough is enough kind of thing. And now they're trying to cut it off at the knees. So pretty interesting mm-hmm. what can happen if you have an interventionist government. So the question then becomes for other governments around the world, Canada, the United States, all the Western European countries, you know, at what point are you going to intervene here? Is it, is yeah. it like how much of the population has to suffer and be unable to afford housing before you're going to intervene? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I read something that uh, in an article um, uh, that, that you contributed to talking about um, you can't solve anything unless you hold people accountable. If you think about human rights, governments are accountable, and if housing is a human right, then governments. Exactly. And it's, it was it was such a su- such a point of clarity, um, and you know ob- observations, uh, you know, in, in our work and in, in the Canadian context, that's that's clear, but. It's it's so frustrating to see the the accountability ball get tossed from levels of government, oh, absolutely. right? Absolutely. So it's just maddening. You get whiplash looking, <laughs> trying to keep track no, of it. No, I think you raise a really good point um, about this the the intergovernmental problems in Canada. Um, a very famous economist and thinker, uh, Mariana Mazzucato, has a new book out called Mission Economy: A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism, and I mean, she argues that if we're going to solve the biggest, well, what she calls wicked problems of the world, Mm. it's going to take a huge amount of creativity, a huge and new way of harnessing resources. And I would add to that, it's going to take new relationships and a new understanding of relationships. And I mean, she looks at, you know, what it took to, to get people to the moon, um, and the harnessing of resources and the way in which bureaucracies had to be way more creative. Um, and I, I've been looking to see, you know, are the big systemic conversations happening in this country around, um, the division of powers with respect to housing, with the constitutional mm-hmm. power given to the provinces, with the federal government having the spending power, and with the municipalities being on the front lines of delivery, of housing delivery. And, I mean, it is not working. And the pandemic exposed the way it's just not working. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, if we're going to shoot for the moon in this country with respect to housing, then what we need to do is start by looking at those relationships and figuring out how to make them work better and work for people who are in need. I mean, there are people in Canada that which will soon be the ninth largest economy in the world. We've moved up a notch during the pandemic. We've moved up a notch to the ninth. We have people living in parks, in tents, it's cold, getting cold outside across the country. And I mean, if if governments are serious about this, they need to look at their intergovernmental relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, an interesting point about the the the, tri- the trip to the moon. Um, you know, I read some some things a while back about how you could there's there was significant um, intellectual diversity in those first moon missions. They might, you know, you see those pictures, everyone might have looked the same. Uh, and there was certainly a, a lack of certain kinds of diversity, but the intellectual diversity was there. Whereas future versions of NASA, NASA missions, um, everyone might look a little different, but there had been a group think evolving and that's what led to, you know, some of the catastrophes of the, sh- of the shuttle missions. And so I think that the, you know, any, system that exists for long enough can take sort of a groupthink shared mindset. So commodification of housing as an example, and you need to disrupt that with other views and experiences in order to 
shift, that, uh, shift however one approaches yeah, it. Yeah, I think you totally nailed it there. And that Mariana Mazzucato does talk about that, the diversity of intellect that went in to mm. getting uh, people to the moon, and and the when you and you nailed it too on the housing front, the lack of diversity. I had a list. I'm not sure I have it now, but the the lack of diversity of who's engaged in housing. I mean, the sad truth is, it's a whole lot of white men who are the mm. CEOs of all of these companies in Canada: Starlight, Capri, Kingset, etc. It's all white men who are at the helm. If you look at the two largest private equity firms, Blackstone and BlackRock, Larry Fink and Stephen Schwartzman, um, it's actually the other way around. Blackstone is Schwartzman and BlackRock is Fink. Um, but this issue about the the need for a, a plurality of ideas, thinkers, actors to solve a crisis um, gets us to the issue of supply and who's providing mm -hmm. supply. And, you know, a lot of governments in Canada at every level and around the world will say, oh, supply is the answer to the housing crisis. Supply, supply, supply. And it's so amazing because what they're doing, it's it's that groupthink, as you say. They're, they're mm -hmm. simply giving giving the crisis back to the people. They're giving the mm -hmm. crisis back to the people who caused the crisis in the first place and say, solve it. Mm -hmm. Well, do they have any mm -hmm. interest in solving it? No, they have an interest in continuing along the path they're on. Uh, and that that's not going to get us to the moon, right? Mm -hmm, for sure, for sure. And I mean, that, that speaks to the uh, <clears throat> not only the supply and the model of providing that supply, but even um, the type of supply. So the forms of housing and all those kinds of things. There could be all kinds of different styles, formats, ways of living accommodation. Exactly, types of tenure. If, exactly. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So if it just keeps returning to the start, then you'll just keep getting the That's same right. thing. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, so can you share any um, models of housing, um, systems of housing that are kind of swimming upstream uh, with this commodification and financialization of, of housing? I mean, some people would point to Singapore as um, an example where they've kind of thread the needle um, hmm. or walked walk a thin line. I don't know what the right metaphor mm -hmm. is, but um, <laughs> they... They have um, a fair amount of investment in residential real estate, foreign investment, Chinese dollars, for example. Um, mm -hmm. And so they've, they've managed to maintain that as part of their economic growth. But at the same time, they are uh, heavily into the provision of housing as a quasi-state. And um, so... So they make sure that their populations are properly housed and housing is affordable um, or affordable enough um, while maintaining the ability to bring in investors. Um, how do they mm. do that? I mean, they tax investors uh, quite heavily, but there's a sweet spot heavily enough to let them keep coming in. Uh, not heavy, mm. not too heavy that it prohibits them from coming in, but heavy enough that 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 taxation can be used to provide uh, affordable housing to other people, 
to the people who are resident. Mm. Um, they're constantly building and constantly upgrading. So, you know, and is it pretty? No. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the skyscrapers of Singapore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not pretty. Um, and if you go to any city in Asia where they've d- done a huge drive, like, you know, a million homes or whatever, you'll see it's not, yeah. they're not pretty. But are they adequate? Often they are. Are they affordable? Often, not always. I've been to South Korea, very unaffordable, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, not not good in terms of urban design, you might say. <laughs> right. Right. Well, if if I'm not mistaken, I think Singapore, the <clears throat> the the hawker centers that they're famous for, that actually has a connection to some of the housing initiatives um, back in the in the in the 20th century, where um, the the provision of housing was, was public housing was given, but it didn't have you know necessarily adequate kitchen infrastructure, and that led to the hawker centers, which is a huge part of the cultural identity of the place, which plays on the cultural diversity. It's interesting that intersection right. of government, housing, culture, yep. infrastructure. Absolutely. <laughs> interesting how that can all make, mix up in sometimes really creative and interesting mm-hmm. ways and sometimes not yeah, so that's, much. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I guess any any last thoughts in terms of the you know, we've talked, you know, the headliner uh, for me really seems to be governments need to take this seriously and reframe their consideration of housing. And we need more diversity uh, in our housing conversations and actions. Um, any other key takeaways for folks that are trying to think about housing as we as we emerge from from the COVID reality at whatever point that happens? Mm. Huh. Um, well, I think... The idea of holding governments accountable is is very important. Um, mm-hmm. I I think as we go forward, it's an opportunity. The pandemic has presented an opportunity for many people to ask themselves, but also their governments, society as a whole. Like you know, who do we want to be? And you you see you hear about the numbers of people who have changed jobs, right? Or who just simply refuse to work that minimum wage job because the conditions are so terrible. And Mm -hmm. um, it suggests to me that, that, uh, that people are willing to do a rethink. And I think we have to start asking ourselves, what does a values based economy look like? And what values do we want to underpin or be the foundation of that economy? And I mm-hmm. would suggest that rather than casting about for a set of values, we could just look to the human rights values that governments have already committed to, because that's easy. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the Sustainable Development Goals, which is a set of values, um, 17 values and why wouldn't we rely on those as the underpinning for the mm-hmm. new economy, uh, post-pandemic economy? Um, that seems to make good sense to me. Um, we have a lot of, like, where the right to housing is concerned, it means something. There's a, there's a definition of the right to housing. There are standards yeah. that have to be met. Um, it's very concrete. It's doable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's so nice about human rights as the value system 
uh, for new economies, post-pandemic world, is it will create happier societies, more equal societies, more peaceful societies, and uh, societies full of of um, people who experience well-being. So that's the kind of world I wouldn't mind living in post-pandemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that just, yeah, wonderful thoughts, and, and, and I totally agree with you. And I think one of the, one, trying to find some silver linings, of the continued difficulty and challenge and not going awayness <laughs> of COVID is that the longer it happens, I think there's at least pot- a greater potential for more of a reset. So the longer hard, these hardships are, are dealt with, uh, the more people are for people, cities, na- nations are forced to rethink how things are because they have the time they've been forced to not just sort of go along. So hopefully the, the continued hardship can be translated into mm-hmm. something much closer to what you just articulated. I hope so. I mean, the protracted nature of it, um, I think it could have that effect. I'm a little concerned. Yesterday I was reading an article about um, a cafe owner in uh, Toronto who was kind of getting ready for a potential lockdown or some kind of a um, limitation on patrons um, that he can service at any given time. And he said, you know, I'm ready. This is the new normal. I've opened, closed, opened, closed, opened, closed. I know how to do this. And that worried me from the point of view of, you know, him saying this is the new normal. And I don't mm. want society to get adjusted to people living in parks, to uh, people yeah, right, being evicted right. into homelessness, to people being housing insecure, um, to the big actors just being able to march in and and purchase, 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 and jack up rent. So, so for sure. That's great yeah. Point. That's my only you, concern. You could get used to the other yes. side of, of, of the change, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Great point. Yeah. Great. Point. And one of the things I, I will just say, I heard, um, uh, Christia Freeland, um, the deputy prime minister and the minister of finance speaking this morning. And she was saying, you know, she wanted to reassure people in Canada that Canada's doing okay, and that of the G7 countries, we're actually doing financially the best. And, well, I guess she wanted us to be comforted by that. I also know that Canada, even though Canada rolled out the CERB, um, employment supplements, etc., and though they supported businesses in terms of paying rent, although there wasn't much pickup on that program, as I understand it, and though they did pour in new monies to homelessness, Canada still underspent on the social side as compared to other mm. G7 okay. nations. And so, mm. I mean, underspent, I don't know. I mean, whatever. They spent less. And so, yeah, mm. yay, <laughs> we're in a great economic situation. But who has benefited and who is benefiting? And a little worried about that. Um, yeah. And that's such a old normal for Canada to like, look at us. Aren't we great? We're doing so well economically. Yeah. At whose expense? I mean, in the, mm. in the years when Jean Chrétien was prime minister and Paul Martin was his finance minister, we had nine successive budgets that, that, um, um, 
were, you know, very healthy, robust uh, budgets. Um, and that was off the backs of people living in poverty, right? The slashing of welfare rates, the, the change mm. in the way and the amount of money being transferred from federal government to provincial government, territorial government. So, so I don't know, an economic rosy picture at the macro level is not an economic rosy picture at the micro level. Household yeah, level. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, yeah, and it gives, you know, what you described about the underspending, you know, speak to, speaks to some probable clues about the, the concentration of the good news exactly. story. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so one last question before uh, we let you go. We ask everybody, uh, can you tell me a city that you love and why you love it? Huh. Uh, I've <laughs> I know been you've been to a few. Of cities, and I love <laughs> lots of cities. I, I love all cities, actually, for all for their charm or their shabbiness. Um, you know, so I can say that. But um, oh, well, it's funny. I was talking with my. Uh, deputy director of the shift yesterday and uh we for some reason we were talking about Lyon, a small city and mm. well it's not actually that small but i think it's like the, th- the fourth largest city maybe in in france and i was saying how much i loved it there and i don't know why mm. i loved it there so i don't know what to say it just had a good vibe um but is it like my favorite city oh uh, no probably not um that's just a city yeah, you love that's, yeah. that's you know yep. Lyon, porto <laughs> portugal okay Okay. Okay. Excellent. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the What's Next series. Stay tuned for the next and final episode of the series where we're going to look at what's next for transportation. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.